And so we're trying to break down the walls between traditions, but do it in a responsible way. Everybody gets to play, everybody gets their ideas, but you gotta, you know, put up or shut up. If you have a pathway through the woods, it's, it's really gonna help people. Say what it is, how you measure it and how you modify it, put it into the mixer of what we need to do analytically and empirically to figure that out. Some of which is very new, very different than what we have been doing for reasons that we discovered in our journey. In this interview, we're joined by Professor Stephen C. Hayes, the co-developer of acceptance and commitment therapy, relational frame theory, and most recently, process-based therapy, also known as PBT. This session provides an introduction to PBT, what it is, what it isn't, and how it can help clinicians both better serve their clients and continuously improve their clinical skills. You'll learn why it's vital to view psychological problems as existing as nodes in a network, why the 10,000 hour rule doesn't apply in therapy, and what you can do about it, how to take a scientific approach to your therapeutic work that enables you to get to the root causes of your client's issues and continuously improve your skills, how to take a multi-level approach to psychotherapy, the extended evolutionary meta-model and how it can enhance therapeutic work, and more. If you're interested in a deeper dive after this session, I highly recommend checking out a copy of Professor Hayes' new book by going to bit.ly forward slash learning dash pbt the link for that will be in the show notes for this episode steve um welcome to the summit um for anybody that doesn't know you or hasn't or isn't aware of your work could you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background to get us started here please well, I'm a clinical psychologist with a behavioral analytic orientation who, um, you know, I've spent my career trying to figure out what are the processes that underlie human prosperity and human misery, and um, especially uh, this uh, new kid on the block called language and cognition that's uh, hundreds to maybe a thousand times younger than the other major sources of influence over our learning and, and adaption to the world, operant classical conditioning, things like that. Although we're half a billion years old, but you and I are doing probably 400,000 years old, no more than 2.8 million years, we're certain of that. And so uh, it's they call it a mental health problems for a reason, but at the same time, you know, our success as a species and as individuals depends on our ability to think creatively, to be, be aware of opportunities, to learn from the past and all these kinds of things. So how do you square that circle? And uh, uh, the work on relational frame theory, which is the analysis of language and cognition and its application to, um, to those kind of practical problems through acceptance and commitment therapy or training, depending on the setting, either case it's called ACT. And now extending it into kind of a model of the model that's underneath that whole development process and process-based therapy has been my uh, professional life. I think for a normal person, a lot of that would be gobbledygook. And I would say, I'm the guy who's trying to figure out uh, why it's so hard to be human and what to do about it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good way to look at it, I suppose. Um, so in this interview, Stephen, we're going to focus on process-based therapy, something that you've co-developed with um, Stefan Hoffman. Um, yeah. So for anybody that isn't aware of what, what uh, PBT is, 
Um, could you maybe just give us a maybe a simple uh, definition of it, and maybe how would you explain this to a ten-year-old um, if you were if you had to? Well, let's do the definition. See if I can get to the ten-year-old. The definition uh, or, or description would be: This is not a a new form of therapy. It's a new model of what evidence-based therapy should be being able to do intervention more generally, not just therapy, but any kind of psychological intervention in a way uh, that is uh, guided uh, by behavioral, uh, by biobehavioral science. Um, And the vision of it is that uh, we can do a better job of producing the outcomes that people want by focusing on what we know about how to go from here to there on what the processes of change are that have been shown to lead to outcomes uh, rather than just what are the outcomes you want or what is the place that you're stuck now. And then to target those things with kernels and elements rather than one size fits all gigantic tome that you put on people's head, whether they needed every chapter in that book or not. And um, that's a different vision. We've never really done it before. I haven't had the data, the, the way of thinking, the analytic tools to do it. To the 10 year old, I'd say, Uh, What this is, is us trying to figure out uh, what is the pathway through the woods if you're trying to go somewhere and which of those pathways would most successfully lead you there. And so you probably know sometimes you can do things that create problems for yourself and sometimes you can do things that really help you get what you want. And we want to do enough exploration of that forest that we can help you get what you want take the right hand turn, not the left hand turn. And, and you're likely to get to the, the clearing and you'll be able to play that kind of knowledge is what is PBT, but it's not a real pathway. It's more the things that you do that take you forward in your life. 100%. And maybe it's equally as important to say what this isn't. So this isn't uh, just another, you know, can you maybe tell us a bit more about what PBT isn't? It's not another form of therapy. It's not another type of therapy. It's not another kind, not another brand, not another, another theory, not another set of uh, techniques, not another protocol, not another thing you get certified in and walled off and said, don't do those other things, only do this thing because some great charismatic uh, founder says it's really important. And by the way, if you just pay me $500, I'll give you the inside knowledge to get to the fifth level. I mean, none of that. And so we're trying to break down the walls between traditions but do it in a responsible way. Everybody gets to play, everybody gets their ideas, but you gotta, you know, Put up or shut up. If you have a pathway through the woods, it's it's really going to help people. Say what it is, how you measure it, and how you modify it. Put it into the mixer of what we need to do analytically and empirically to figure that out. Some of which is very new, very different than what we have been doing for reasons that we discovered in our journey. I didn't know about the ergodic theorem when I started out with PBT. I know about it now. We'll get into that, but. I didn't know that so much of what we're doing will never give us process knowledge and we're going to have to change our, our, our ways in order to get it. But um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a pushing the reset button on the whole field, but not as an aspiration or hope, a wish or desire, but it's something that takes what we know right now, what we have in hand right now and reorganizes it because we've learned a lot. We just didn't know how to, make use of it all. And we've been distracted by all of these uh, different wings and brands and islands and, you know, defended territories with their 
you know, special terms and, you know, special little rituals and payments and certification, unlike a lot of areas where science is relevant. When you get over into human behavior, we haven't matured really, uh, even to be on the same page enough that we can uh, take what's useful and, and leave the rest. And, and we need to. And, and if you're not sure why we need to, just turn on the television. And as I speak right now, watch the Ukrainian war. And if, if that's not of interest to you, then maybe you watch what's happening in terms of climate change or immigration or what young people are facing with rising levels of anxiety, depression, et cetera. I mean, it, just everywhere you look, we need that kind of knowledge. How do we change our behavior, change what we do to live a more a successful life? And um you know, it's time for us really to be able to deliver for the culture. If, if there's somebody listening to this, maybe maybe they're trained in one type of approach. Maybe they're a CBT therapist or an existential therapist, for example. Why would yeah. you say it's important for them to be aware of um, process-based therapy? And what are the benefits of um, taking this approach to their work? Well, because if you don't, if you don't focus, focus on processes of change, when you come to the individual, you come with a, an existing theory or with a complaint that they have or a goal that you have and a set of techniques, methods, things that you do that you think can be helpful, and that's it. But you know almost for sure that some of the things that you know how to do aren't needed. Maybe some of the things are, that are needed you don't know how to do. Some of the things that the person uh, uh, aspires to uh, don't tell you enough about how to get there and the problems that they have don't tell you enough about how to free people up so that they can move forward. And so uh, it would be kind of like um, uh, the way I explain it, it's we're proposing that people cheat and the cheat is Go to the end and work backwards. I, I love doing mazes. I've drawn a thousand of them because I have uh, four kids who range from uh, 52 to 16. And, uh, uh, you know, in those uh, 50 years in which I've had kids in the home so far, still counting, uh, you know, I would draw them and they would, they would play. And then eventually I would say, you know, here's if you ever get stuck in a maze, here's what you do. It's really easy. Go to the end and work backwards. And so if you go to the end and work backwards, you kind of know what the goal is, but that isn't enough. Uh, you work backwards to where? To where the person is. Where's the start interest, right? And there's all this complexity. What process-based therapy says is the pathways are what's important. And not every pathway has to be explored to solve a maze. You don't have to go down every cul-de-sac and every dead end. You can avoid some. And you don't have to be giving everything that you need. You don't have to have the knowledge of the ages, you know, sprung forth in the head of Zeus and you know everything. You just need enough to make the right hand turn here and the left hand turn there. Well, processes of change will give you that. It'll give you for this person, these are the things they've been doing that have been leading to dead ends. Mm -hmm. For this person, this is where they want to go. And given where they are, these pathways, which will require these skills, are most likely to lead them there. 
And so instead of hoping that if we just collect people into similar problems, that's what we've been doing in our diagnostic system, or hoping that we have the magic theory that is the one size fits all big tome and theory that will apply to everyone for everything all, at all times. Instead, if we, we really focus on what we know right now and we can learn more quickly when we get our pro proper focus on the pathways of change that we'll be able to tailor and fit how uh, uh, we help people learn the skills that they need for the specific situation they're in, the, the way they live their life, life has lived for them and the common errors they're making that are preventing progress and the things that they could do to create it towards the goal they have, the goal they have, not the goal that I have or you have, the goal they have. And, uh, you know, in, in, in some areas, like in medicine, yeah, we used to just botanize cancer. You know, there's the one that's kind of reddish and the one's kind of brown and it has this little shape and that's it. We stopped doing it. Why? Because people kept dying. <laughs> it didn't tell you. It wasn't very useful. It had a name and somebody was really proud. I named the the funny little, you know, chartreuse one, you know, that it, it wasn't until we got in the lab and started studying oncogenes and how cells go rebel and turn on a multicellular system and so forth, how you can turn them on and off, what you can do to treat it. That began to, you know, people would live 10, 20, 30 years after a really major cancer bout. And sometimes all the way up into something like stage four cancer and they'd walk back from the cliff and we're doing better. And we're doing better in part because it's more personalized, basic, understanding. And um, I think personalized medicine is the future of medicine. And uh, in the same way, it should be the future of psychosocial interventions. And so what do you want to personalize? Knowledge about the processes people have been deploying. By processes, I just mean the series of steps. Like a, the Latin word means a parade, a procession. We still say procession, processes. So nothing complicated, just a series of steps you've been taking that haven't paid off and the series of steps you could take that would pay off. That's it. That's what our focus should be. And um, I think uh, the field's ready for it and we know enough to really do a lot quickly by doing it. 100%. That's really interesting. Um, so... In another talk, um, Steve, I heard you use the metaphor of um, bricks and learning PBT is like, you know, learning how to build with bricks. Could you maybe expand on that? Because I find that really helpful for helping me to understand the concept. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't quite have the verb quality that you might want, like a process does, but it's a really easy thing to imagine. If you think of all the things that bricks could be used for. Uh, you know, if I, if I just had a, a brick and somebody said, what do you, you know, do it. Yeah. You know, I'd say, well, do what, <laughs> what do you want? You know, I could build you a pathway. I could build you a wall. I could build you a, you know, a garden shed. I could build you a castle if I have enough of them. And what the metaphor there is there are elements that are not that many. I mean, if you're building homes and so forth, how many, I don't know, but maybe there's 200 different elements that you could put into a, a building, but there's not a, you know, an unlimited gazillion things. There's a limited things, but you better know how they can be combined and used to really build a safe and sound uh, structure that would do what people want. Uh, the bricks of psychosocial intervention are processes of change. 
And so when you know that, uh, then we can look at the situation as it is, look at the site, we can look at the goals, what it is that you want to have happen, and we can put those two together. And so, you know, it isn't even, you might think, oh, really, the only thing that you've done here is instead of problem and protocol, you put in the middle, you got another process. No, because actually it isn't even protocols. It's going to be kernels. It's going to be little elements. It's going to be little features. And so uh, you can think of those as elements too, like windows. You could think of those as bricks, but the the being able to put together in a more micro way what the person wants, how you're going to get there, what are the elements that need to put be put in there, how you put them uh, into the individual's life, given their, how, how life is for them, the challenges they face, the situations they're in, the supports they have, etc. cetera. Uh, that uh, would be, is what our challenge is in uh, treatment. And we do it in other areas of life, just like building things. I'm actually a kind of an inveterate carpenter. I was maybe going to be a carpenter. My three things when I, I tried to get in graduate school and didn't get in for three years running, every single place turned me down. It turned out I had a bad letter from the good father cyclic. I thought I was a drug addict because I was a hippie and I had my hair down here, which is not a good thing to put in the letter. I was not a drug addict. I was just a hippie. Come on, please. But um, uh, 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 yeah, the alternative was to be a carpenter or a politician. I've ended up being all three in a way. And because um, uh, well, I finally did get fix the letter problem and get admitted. But uh, you know, that the, the metaphor of, of being a carpenter, being a builder, is pretty close to the task, I think, that we want from the people who help us. We're trying to build a life. And um, whether it's education, weekend university, uh, or um, a psychological intervention, you know, the kind of work that I do, uh, we're builders of human lives. And the elements are what we need to focus on. It's a really interesting way to, to look at it. Um, so from listening to yourself and also listening to, uh, to Stefan speak about this as well, um, it seems that PBD's, PBT centers around the question of, and I might get this wrong, so correct me if yeah. I get it wrong, but what are the core biopsychosocial processes um, that need to be targeted with this client given this goal and this situation? And, and how can they most effectively and efficiently be changed? Yeah. Um, could you maybe tell us about the significance of this question and also maybe talk about the switch from, it seems in the past we were focusing on um, going from problem to treatment protocol. Now we're going from problem to change process to treatment protocol. Yeah, and I addressed that just a little bit. I mean, the late Gordon Paul, a friend and a wonderful, wonderful uh, early uh, experimental uh, clinical scientist, um, uh, had a, a question in 1967, repeated in 1969, that became probably the best known question in all of clinical psychology. You know, uh, what treatment delivered how, for given this problem, this situation is, is most uh, likely to be effective, and how does that come about? The focus there was what are the treatment elements that we need? given the person's uh, problem and goal. And then there was that phrase, and how does it come about? It actually wasn't 
I said he, he said it in 67, he said it in 69. In the 67 version, it's not even in there. It's just what element do we need to do this problem? In other words, it was entirely what are the techniques that we most likely to work? Yeah, but he realized, Gordon did, in that two-year period, oh, dear, I've kind of left out theory, principles, processes by not saying, and how does that come out? I need to know why, not just what. I mean, after all, uh, if you don't make that distinction, you'd say that, you know, a baker is one of the best scientists on the planet. I mean, after all, they have a drawer full of recipes that can tell you exactly what to do. If you want some outcome, they'll do it. And, and you know, with exact precision and even down to the temperature and, and every single time you'll get, to get that outcome. So a baker is the best scientist in the world. No, they're not. Because it takes a whole freaking drawer full of recipes. And, you know, what if you, and, and that's just in one style of food. If you had all the food, you couldn't, you couldn't build a house big enough to contain all the recipes. And how do you even find them? You know, so, you know, what science does equals MC squared. It takes things that could be applicable almost everywhere and distill it down. I mean, science isn't just about being precise. It's about being, having principles that have broad scope and depth. And so precision is something that's great. Bakers have that. Lots of plumbers have that. Lots of folks have that. That's really great. That's great. But scope and depth, being able to speak and understand in a way that applies to many things across many different levels, that's something that science is especially good at. And it makes things especially useful because you hit brand new situations. You have no idea. How do I bake this? Well, I don't know. It's on my recipe book. Uh, yeah, but I'll tell you what it is. I've got these ingredients. So it says, I don't, I, I don't, uh, and it's not in my recipe book. You know, yeah, but you can do that to a scientist. You can say, you know, here's this thing that I want to have happen. And if you're a physicist, let's say, you can talk to the architect about how to make that really unusual building that's never been built before not fall down. You know, that you know the math, you know the understanding and principles, et cetera. And in fact, uh, you know, there's whole fields that do that. And when you have extraordinary weird things, you know, you want to build a house that's 10 stories tall, entirely out of glass, they've been built, you can do it. But you better have a structural engineer who really knows how to consult with somebody who has deep knowledge about the stress forces and so forth involved. You know, somebody who has a, a degree that goes over to those basic principles or that, you know, that thing won't be safe to walk around inside. So, uh, you know, kind of in the, in the same way, when Gordon realized that and put that tag on, how does it come about? He didn't really shift his focus to that. We didn't know enough. And the other reason was, is that he thought he knew. Why? Because we had spent a lot of time in the learning labs, almost all with non-human animals, but some in the, you know, the social, uh, uh, le social learning uh, labs on imitation, things like that. But we thought, you know, reinforcement, stimulus control, things like that, behavior therapy, you know, Gordon Paul was a behavior therapist, was built upon learning principles from the animal learning lab. And we thought, that's, yeah, that's going to be good enough. Well, it wasn't good enough. I mean, 1969, he says that. Well, heck, by 1974, we're starting to think maybe we need cognitive behavior therapy. That's only five years later. 
because people talk. And, you know, if you're just going to do reinforcement stimulus control, you run into the fact that you don't have a good science as to how to talk about that. Well, now you're getting in an era that's, I mean, I'm going to graduate school in 1975. I mean, and I'm, swearing a solemn oath i'm going to figure out language and cognition by 1977 during a talk that the, the late willard day here at the university of nevada eventually brought me here uh, got me so excited about that i sort of secretly made a promise i'm going to figure that out and i spent my year trying to my, my life trying to figure it out because language and cognition relational learning adds something new but the problem with that next wave of evidence-based therapy and cognitive behavior therapy happened is we didn't have really good principles that were high scope and high precision. So you do things like, well, maybe the thoughts are irrational. Maybe they're, uh, you know, they're hyper, they're extended, they're, you know, maybe there's a cognitive error and you can easily find them. You know, people take a specific instance, turn it into black and white thinking, I'll always be, miserable no one will love me why because somebody rejected me oh wait a minute dude that's a kind of a that's a logical error you know you just don't do like one instance and then it's going to be always and everywhere that's just not you know you wouldn't do that in other situations etc yeah but that's not too different than something your grandma could probably say don't worry so much dear oh you're it's overblown it's overblown you're you're, you're carrying it to the logical extreme and i mean it, it's fine. I don't want to, oh gosh, I'm going to get in trouble because I'm not saying these things weren't wonderful at their time, but it isn't enough. And we eventually learned out, learned that some of the things that happened in that phase of work were, were wrong. That yes, cognition is really important, but no, for example, you don't need to detect your logical errors and pound on them. Sometimes that directs your attention towards exactly where you don't want to attend. Maybe what you need to do is think more flexibly, take what's useful and leave the rest. And that might benefit from sort of stepping back, noticing, being more mindful, being more diffused. It's things that are more in the third wave of CBT, of learning to be more open, aware, and actively engaged in life. So the shift towards what are the biopsychosocial processes takes that shift that's been happening and it says, okay, but, you know, even the so-called third wave, yeah, your, your relationship to your feelings and thoughts are important. That's great. But, you know, that was kind of in there, even in the second wave. I mean, after all, the first name for ACT was comprehensive distancing. Distancing was Beck's idea of at least notice your thoughts enough that you can get ready to, detect, to challenge and change them. To be able to detect them, you had to back up and notice them because people will say, I don't have any thoughts. What do you mean? I'm not thinking anything. The world sucks. That's the problem. You know, you just don't notice that you got to that through a process that is hidden to you because it's so common and familiar. It's like, you know, a fish being aware of water or a bird of air and us being aware of our own thoughts. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you would suggest that the clients they're eventually and they're doing thought records and they'd come back and say oh my god i have thoughts you know now everybody talks about it that way so it's a lot easier but where what we're doing with pbt is say well 
it isn't like the first wave, the second wave, the third wave. It's also what about the humanists? What about the existentialists? What about the analysts? What about the systems people? And by the way, this sociocultural level of relationships and small groups and the culture you come from requires attention. They all psychological. And by the way, if you're not sleeping and you're not eating well, and you're not exercising and there's genetics and epigenetics and brain circuits, and those are important. So we have to then, okay, back up enough, be a little humble, look at it all. What are these different dimensions of psychology? What are the things going on biophysiologically and socioculturally? And in each of those areas, look about what do we know about processes of change? What do we look know about how we get from here to there? And how can we put that into human lives? And then the next thing you need is a model that allows you to keep all that in your head and a method that allows you to look at people as, cons as complex systems where everything interacts, no billiard balls or dominoes falling. Life's not like that. It's more like a, a jumble, like a, a you know, there used to be this game you I played as a kid called pickup sticks. Where you get, I don't know if you know the game, but you have these long sticks and you, they're different colors and you put them all together and you put them in a big pile. And then the goal would be to remove one stick at a time without having the rest of the stick pile move. Okay. And, uh, you know, or everything is all like this, you know, and you got to look at it, look at it, you know, like, yeah, most of the sticks, if you try to move them, the whole thing's going, there's usually one, you can go, you can take that one out. In the same way, metaphorically, uh, you know, we're kind of a complex network. And if you want to understand why it works, look at how it feeds on itself and interlocks, if you want to understand how to change it. You know, we better uh, think about what is the most likely to change and to lead something that's now stable around a healthy uh, process of strengthening rather than these uh, strengthening are things we call disorders and so forth. So that's the PBT vision. It's um, a shift from Gordon Paul's vision because it's uh, uh, the central focus, not the add on, tag on, last few words are the processes. And because we understand that in order to get there, we're gonna to have to be Catholic with a small C, we're gonna to have to be open universal to any good processes out there that are well supported empirically and that can be moved by kernels. And then we're gonna to have to have measurement and analytic systems that allow us to apply to the actual individual because these things are dynamic, they're hierarchical, they, they all kind of fit together. One thing leads to another. Sometimes I can pick up sticks. You have to move that stick before you can move that stick. As, as some concepts, you know, contain many things underneath it. You know, you don't get this bigger thing until you have all the elements underneath, etc. The double-headed arrows and a complex kind of diagram. And um, that's going to require new statistical tools. And we've spent a lot of time on that lately and on the underlying reasons for that, which is a bit shocking uh, in some ways and daunting, and uh, but also exciting. So uh, it's pretty different. Uh, if people just think, oh, you're inventing a new therapy, big deal, everybody does that. Excuse me, no, that's not what we're doing. There's no new therapy here at all. 
It's uh, we're inventing a new uh, strategic uh, challenge to ignorance. Very interesting. Okay, so it, maybe to make things more concrete for people listening to this now, um, yeah. can we can we talk about the example of somebody who comes to comes to a process-based therapist and maybe they're struggling with loneliness in their life. How would a process-based therapist tackle that problem with the client? Well, let's start with first how you wouldn't tackle it. I mean, uh, you picked one loneliness that may not actually be in the classical DSM kind of thing. It's in there as elements and so forth. But in a way that gives us an advantage because we could do the, we could say, okay, you're lonely. You need to be around people. We need to give you the social skills that will help you have friends. If you have friends, you won't be lonely. Uh, excuse me, dude. There's people who are lonely. Do the actual studies. Go look at the data. Who are around friends constantly. Who have hundreds of friends in their life. And deep down, they feel lonely. They complain of loneliness. How is that possible? Well, and other people really don't have social skills. They don't have any friends. And well, are those two persons, let's say on on your little measure of loneliness, you get the same scale score of those two people. Are they identical? Are they the same? Should they be treated the same way? Well, pretty obviously not. One might actually need social skills training. Another one might need uh, help in how can you learn to be a more vulnerable, intimate, connected, open, et cetera, with uh, the people who are, that you have uh, uh, created enough of a relationship with to be, to call them friend. But, you know, you've been, for example, people will feel lonely if they fake it, if they lie, if they don't let other people lie functionally kind of, or outright normal lies, but if they don't really let people see who they are or if they're uh, wrapped up into some sort of narcissistic delusional, I'm the greatest of the great and the grandest of the grand. I will make your group great again. Here's my baseball cap that says it. You know, <laughs> that person's going to be damn lonely because they're coming into belonging through this, this way of interacting with others that doesn't allow other people to see who they are. And of course, I'm talking about the Donald here, but you know that's just a worldwide example. And don't we all know that's a lonely man? And for goodness sakes, he's having sex with a porn star while his baby is being born. I mean, really? Really? Um, so, you know, he's worried about his, his family being after his money. I mean, how lonely can you be? Now, I don't want to beat up on the dollar. I'm just saying you take something like loneliness and you, and it's a situation, but it's not a process. And you need to end up saying the processes to know what to do. If you had, you know, God's gift to how to help people um, make friends, um, that's not going to reach everybody who's lonely. So what I would do is look at the processes involved 
that lead to it. And one way that I might do it is let's say I have some measures of different kinds of processes that are sometimes happening in people. And let's say the person is willing to every time the cell phone beeps to answer about 15 questions about what's been going on over the last three or four hours, including how lonely do they feel right now or how distressed or I would figure out, figure out how to word it. But sometimes loneliness is not a bad thing. I mean, if you have somebody really close to you who's died and you feel lonely, it could be a goad to, okay, I'm going to have to, you know, do something different because the, the persons I used to spend my time with have so much friend with us, they're no longer here on the planet, right? I mean, old people tend to be lonely often because they sometimes don't know how to make that transition. But uh, if you gave me that, the stress or loneliness, let's say, and these different kind of processes, and let's say every time it beeps, you do it. You know, after, uh, if, unfortunately, these analytic methods take about 60 data points, so it's going to take about a month. But if after about a month or three times a day, you know, about three weeks, I'll be able to model what happens to you. And when does loneliness go up or down? And what are all the things that influence it and how? And something, if, if, it, if you're stuck on it, something is self-amplifying or self-feeding that is leading to it. Um, I'll give you an example. We uh, did this kind of study, and we include loneliness as one of the measures. And it's uh, under review uh, right now, Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science. And we used exactly what I talked about, an app with a small number of process questions, uh, pinging people and with outcomes, including distress over loneliness. And I'm thinking of one of the persons in the study who was lonely at a high level compared to others in the group. But one of the things that was weird is they had a set of processes that looked kind of healthy. You know, uh, they tried to focus on what's important and do what works and think about what would work best and do that. And those things linked to each other. They self-amplified. Yeah, but then the more the person did that, the lonelier they felt. You go like, what? How's that possible? These are healthy processes. And then you look more carefully and there's items in there like um, had an appropriate outlet for emotions or uh, decided to do what is personally important. And deciding to do what personally is important wasn't linked to, I did something, I did important things. So here's what was happening. When the person was feeling lonely, they became a workaholic. You know, like if I just achieve enough, people will want me and care about me. I mean, it's easy to get into that process, right? And not really even think about, is this really personally important to you? Or is this just important? And when you say, keep doing what works, is it keep doing what works that's important? Or that you actually experience helps you connect with other people or to be the kind of person you want to be or do what's personally important? And so even process-based therapists better be careful because there is not a process you can name. Let me, you know, uh, uh, you know, 
gore my own work. Uh, it takes something like emotional openness. That's good, right? No, it's not. Not always. Not everywhere. You know, when I wrote about experiential avoidance, experiential acceptance in the early days, yeah, I thought it was good everywhere. But the data came in and said, it wasn't good everywhere. I'll give you an example. If you're a first responder and you got to go triage people, some of whom are going to die and some of whom can survive, and you're going to see horrors day after day, you're going to see brains on the street. You're going to see people who are crushed to death. You're going to see, you know, things that will live in your nightmares for the rest of your life. That's not the time to be emotionally open. When you go home, yeah, you better find a space for that or you're going to be hammering down martinis and slapping your spouse. But right now, maybe not. So there isn't anything, anything that is always good in all situations. Learning how to fit it. Um, back to the spider web, the double-headed arrows, progressivity, the hierarchical, you know, it's complex. And so you look inside the life as it's actually lived and you have skills you can deploy and sometimes you misdeploy them. You put them out there at the wrong time or you don't know how to do certain kind of things. I don't know how to be vulnerable. I don't know how to step back from my thoughts. I don't know how to focus on what's present and stop ruminating or worrying. Uh, and you're not going to find them as uh, the good processes and the bad processes. You're going to find processes that function adaptively or maladaptively in context, in a network, for a person given a goal. Now, that might sound overwhelming, and it could be overwhelming, except that we know a lot. We do have analytic methods that can disentangle this. We do have a lot of knowledge about kernels that can move things. And um, and we do a lot of research and we there's a lot of people out there treating a lot of people. And the cool thing about what we're trying to do, it isn't just big academic medical centers with their hoity-toity brainiac professors and their gigantic grants doing randomized trials with a gazillion people with gold standard controls because it turns out some of these questions have to be asked and answered one at a time, many of them even. And that's an old fashioned idea. I wrote a book on it you know, years ago called The Scientist Practitioner with my mentor, David Barlow, and a good friend, Rosemary Nelson, arguing that clinicians really need to be the main generator of data relevant to how to help people change. Providers need to, not just clinicians. Why? Because they're the ones that see the problems and they're the ones that are doing the, uh, the, uh, change. And so um, if we could harness that, uh, I don't know if that this is that complex that we can't solve it. We've already, another thing that we're finding, if I can, I'm a little bit on a rant, I promised it wouldn't be, but when we do even these simple little studies with just, you know, dozens or scores of people, but not a gazillion, and yeah, it costs a few thousand bucks to run a study, but not something that you couldn't afford to do, you know, probably any clinician could afford to do it, even if at that level, and they certainly could one at a time. I'm holding this up because this is going to be an app, we hope by Q3, if not then Q4. It'll be free, by the way, so this is not a commercial. Uh, I'm the president of a charitable organization that's going to be producing it. 
and, and we've got the money to do it. We have vision for it. We know how we can, we, we think we can succeed. But what we've already found is that when you look at processes of change that are known, and Stefan and I and Joe Sorochi looked at every study ever done in the history of the world in terms of what the processes are, we think we know really pretty much what the set is that we have to start studying. And a few others may be added, but it's the lion's share we know. Uh, people get screwed up in ways that overlap with when you just look at them one at a time and you don't put a theory on top of their head. You just ask them essentially the question, what is your life like? Of course, they don't know. You don't ask it that way. You ask it by measuring them repeatedly over time and seeing what is their life like, what leads to what, what fits together. That there's only so many subgroups. I mean, people only, there's only so many ways to get lonely. It's not an infinite number of ways. That's a lot of ways, but it's not an infinite number of ways. You are not, you're unique, you're an individual, uh, but there are other people like you at this level of processes. And if that's true, and, and I can walk you through some of the stat reasons why I say I think it is true based on what we've been doing now. It, we may not be very far away, a year or two away from a new diagnostic system that basically says, and here are the ways to get screwed up. You know, that's actually possible. Right now, I couldn't do it. Right now, I can give you a model and, and methods and analyses and a vision and measures, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. I think we have enough people interested in PBT and this journey and, and, frankly, who are sick and tired of shoving people into cubby holes and labeling them when we know that it's a lie. You have major depression. Oh, please. You know, you might as well say if somebody has a rash, you have idiopathic dermatitis. What does that mean? It means you have a rash and we don't know why. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's what our diagnostic system is like. It doesn't tell us hardly anything about what to do about people and how they got that way. So time's up, you know, enough billions have been spent on nonsense. And uh, when you really know why the nonsense happened, that's another disturbing thing. Maybe we'll get into that, but uh, because uh, it goes back 150 years to a really dirty, nasty, awful, horrible agenda that uh, we've been living inside and need to walk out of. But uh, we'll see. It's possible that the PBT agenda really can be mounted fast. Just a quick break here to tell you about an exciting new membership we're developing, and then we'll get right back to the show. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is 97 pounds for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information. Really interesting. Um, so one of the things I, I find most interesting about, about PBT is that it looks at, at psychological problems as existing as nodes in a network. And a few questions on this. So what are the benefits of looking at our problems in this way? And whenever a client first comes to therapy, 
I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that a, a process, a, a person that uses this approach, they will actually sit down with the client and map out the network. So what does this process uh, actually look like when they, when they do that? Yeah, the, the processes are nodes and edges, which are just the arrows, the relationships that are there. And eventually this will all be empirical. You know, you, I think, not all be, but we'll give them enough longitudinal data. We're working out ways to have it be maybe faster than 60 data points, which is a lot uh, using Bayesian methods and so forth. But, uh, you know, it really has to be empirical uh, ultimately. But where we are right now in learning process-based therapy, that thing that's over my shoulder, sorry for the commercial, but uh, is that we're teaching clinicians to think of the things the person says and ask the questions about what leads to what and when what leads to what and then what leads to what. And then really looking for those edges, you know, does, does it go both ways or just one way? You know, how frequently is that? Is that really strong? Is it weak? Is it always? Is it sometimes? Uh, and then looking for places where you get these self-amplifying loops, these double-headed arrows where I do this because I did this, but then when I do this, I do this, and it's, uh, you know, I mean, if you... Uh, I'm back to dermatitis. You know, if you have a rash and you scratch it, you can easily get into a thing where the more you scratch it, the more you have a rash, the more you have a rash, the more you scratch it. You can get self-amplifying loops. The point people literally will be, you know, bleeding because they didn't keep their freaking fingers off, off the rash. If they just let it alone after a week, it might've gone away. Well, things like that happen psychologically too. Any place you see these self-amplifying processes. Um, but when you do this clinically with people, you just take the time to really listen. And you're not listening for the five out of nines or the four out of sevens that allow you to shove people into a cubby hole. Oh, you've got major depression. You know, like, oh, please, what a joke. Sad joke. Um, in one of the largest trials ever done on major depression, uh, the STARTE trial with 3,700 people, there were almost 1,100 different combinations of signs and symptoms. And almost half of the people had a collection that fewer than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the other people in that whole group shared. I mean, that is just ridiculous. That's not really a diagnosis. It's just a collection development. Um, but... Uh, when you put it up there in a process network, unlike, you know, here are the five things that define it as major depression. Unfortunately, you also have these other things. So you also have generalized anxiety disorder. And then there's these other things. So you have this personality disorder. I mean, you know, people come out maybe feeling awesome. At least I have something, but soon enough you realize what they're not gonna have is a solution for you, uh, often other than things uh, that sometimes create side effects and create long-term problems. So when you do it with a person and you put the life up that way and they look at it and you do it even with them, it's very frequent. Somebody says, wow, and I can see why I'm stuck. And if I keep doing this uh, and they actually can say that this, not the whole thing, but some specific things they do. Uh, I can see why it's not going to get better. I mean, you get people who have an understanding and with a, a motivation. And that kind of shared model, we're in the same harness here. We're working together. And let's see, given that, 
this part. I mean, I'll give you an example. Person has a strong emotional reaction to things and then does things which regulates that. But unfortunately, some of the things they do are like cutting or, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, mindless sex or drug use or something. And then that creates problems. And then people withdraw from them and they see that's happening. And then you're really out there all on your own. And plus, you feel like your life's getting out of control. And then you have even stronger emotional reactions. And then you start cutting and then you hit it. You know, you may have come by that totally honestly in the sense that, you know, you were abused or you saw models like that or, you know, I mean, it's not like you didn't jump out of the womb saying, hey, I'm going to have a screwed up life. I mean, you were doing the best you could. And some of the things you're doing there are the best you could think of. And they may have even been helpful years ago, you know, where you, you know, if you don't do something, I'm going to. I'm going to kill myself. And then people go, oh, please don't. Yeah, but eventually they say, I, I can't handle this. And they leave you. You know, so things that worked once don't mean that they keep working. At one stage of life or at one point in a relationship don't mean they work forever. Sometimes they can have the opposite effect. And then what are you going to do? So I think being able to understand in this way is really helpful to people. And one of the things we hope to do with the app dream that I have is actually have a version for normal folks. I mean, I want to be able to give it to them and say, Hey, I would like to write a, you know, popular version of this book over my shoulder and say, Hey, you know, do this yourself. Here's a, here's a, a diary you can do. There are the measures you can take. If we have the app, we'll give it to them. Because when you understand what fits together, uh, you have a way forward. And I, you know, I'm an act guy, and there was an early phase of act called creative hopelessness, where we walk into what have you tried to do to solve this problem, knowing full well they've probably done things that are cognitively fused and emotionally avoidant, because that's what people usually do. You do the logical, reasonable, sensible, pathological thing, because you're just following the dictates of a problem-solving agenda. But turning your life into a problem to be solved is a bad idea. But it, most people don't know it's a bad idea because usually that's a good idea. I mean, if you turn the, you know, the leaking roof into a problem to be solved, well, you might have a chance to solve it. You turn your abuse history into that, and what are you going to do? I mean, probably a lot of bad, bad things because, uh, you know, you can cover over a roof, but you can't say, you know, and the rain won't come through. You can't cover over an abuse history and think that pain won't come through. That's not going to work like that. So, um, yeah, it's um, in the creative helplessness piece, you basically just ask people, how does that work? What have you done? How, how's, and then, then what? But then you have this little thing, the scientific theory and the hundreds and now you know, several hundred studies that show this. Isn't that a way of trying to diminish and get rid of and subtract this thought or this feeling or this memory yet yeah, is did you do other things uh, how did that work in the long term and and what you're doing is you're basically planting the seed of oh i've been playing a rigged game you know i can't win this one no matter what i do it's going to be worse it's going to get worse because that's the wrong thing to do maybe i shouldn't do that you know, even if it's really sensible, logical, and obvious, of course you would. People tell you to do it. You know, just don't think about it. Yeah. How do you do that? 
in a healthy way. So I think the journey we're on might lead to a better understanding pretty quickly uh, that we can share with people and that people, the early experience, people really like it. Well, I really hope that you're able to, you know, develop this for people that maybe aren't suffering enough to go to therapy as well. I think that could be, that could yeah. be really, really interesting. Um, so it sort of seems that whenever a client comes to therapy with a problem, the therapist, you know, will sit down with them and they'll map out, they'll map out this network and they'll have a hypothesis in the same way a scientist will have a hypothesis yeah. about, about the change process that might be at the root of this problem. And yeah. then they might state that with the client and then they might develop uh, an intervention that tackles that, whether it's, you know, mindfulness or self-compassion or something. Yeah. And then, and then they'll, they'll use the app and they will collect data to basically assess, you know, is this intervention actually tackling the problem? And then if not, they change the, they change the hypothesis and they come up with something else, a new intervention. And they, so you're always, you're getting feedback and you're iterating as you're going. So you're, you're much more likely to get to the root of the issue this way, as opposed to just taking one, one approach. Is that, is that fair enough? Right on. Couldn't set it better myself. It's exactly what the game is. Exactly how, how we want to play it. Okay. Okay. Um, personally focused, process focused, and, you know, give it a shot. It doesn't work. That's okay. You learn something. And, uh, you know, this has been in functional analytic thinking and, and clinical work forever. But the difference is, is that uh, we have a, a real focus on how we can think about processes of change that allow us to do that in a more, uh, in a more sophisticated way. The last time functional analysis was really, really popular was uh, all we had was learning principles from animal learning labs. And that's not good enough. Yeah. 100%. Um, so one of the things I found really interesting, what you were saying in, in another talk was how clinical experience doesn't predict competence. Yeah. It predicts confidence, but not competence. Can you maybe tell yeah. us why that's the case? Well, it's a horror and it is one of those situations, a 10,000 hours rule, you know, that uh, Anders Ericsson uh, uh, and his uh, colleagues came up with is, uh, applies you know if, if you give enough hours to almost anything in life you get better and you eventually get expert but there's a few exceptions and the exceptions are always when you get bad feedback if you get bad you know the metaphor i use go in the backyard and just give a piece of no coaching at all say here's a basketball here's a basketball hoop throw throw it through there do it 500 times a day i'll come back in a month see how how good you are at it and you can do that with no coaching whatsoever and you may shoot in a way that you never, ever should. You may not be good on a basketball court, but I guarantee you, you'll get more balls through because you have immediate feedback. Clinically, the, more, the time that you've been doing the work doesn't predict your effectiveness. That, that's a known fact. It's very depressing. That's one of the first things I tell my students. I often use it in workshops too. And, I, and they're, they're basically saying, look, you're going to have to solve this in order to, to be an expert. And so what are the, what would the good feedback be? We know that signs and symptoms can't be it because almost every clinician has taken those things as mandated by the healthcare system in order to even be paid. 
So let's just put that aside. That can't be really, really powerful. If it was, we already we wouldn't have this problem. It can't just be clients coming back and saying, oh, I love you so much. You're so helpful. Thank you, doctor, doctor. Oh, yeah, worship the ground that you walk on. Because the clinicians have been, some, you know, beaming as a result of that from time immemorial. And if that were enough, uh, you know, but, you know, what that can mean is you've got a dip, you're shaping dependency. It can mean you, you don't have any healthy boundaries. It can mean all kinds of things that they're not good. And uh, so, well, what is the one empirical known indicator that is early before the problem itself goes away that predicts that the problem will be solved or the prosperity will be obtained? Processes have changed. I mean, mediational studies, for example, mediators in randomized trials are the things that happen before the outcomes change that reliably functionally relate to the long-term outcomes will come. So we went and looked at every mediational study ever done in the history of the world. It took us three years to do it. So it's already dated. You know, we went all the way up to 2018. Then we stopped because 50 people working three years. That's how long it took. But we've put that out now. It's under review right now. We know, you know, what are the most commonly obtained mediators? And um, I'm very happy to say the single most common is psychological flexibility. Uh, the second most is actually part of psychological flexibility, which is uh, mindfulness. Uh, the third is uh, uh, dysfunctional, rational, and unhelpful thoughts. So you got something out of second wave CBT and you got the third wavey CBT folks in there. And those three things are, I just mentioned are more than, are more than half of everything we know. And I could go on from there, but um, so uh, yeah, ball through the hoop. What's the, what is it? What is it? When, when the ball, when you take uh, somebody who's engaging in processes that are not leading to the outcomes and they get a shift to engage in processes that could lead to the outcomes and hopefully will in their case, uh, you did something important. You just put the ball through the hoop. So it kind of mocks us. It means that we're not giving clinicians, practitioners, the knowledge they need. And uh, I hold the scientists accountable for that. I think they've been off uh, categorizing and sorting people instead of empowering people. And, um, but we don't have to keep playing a losing game. Scientists can change too. hundred percent. And that's why I think this, what you've developed here is so powerful because not only is it a, you know, a more effective way to help clients, but you're also helping clinicians to continuously improve what they're doing, you know, and to get better, which is, you know, can only be a good thing for both clients. I and do have to say it's in principle a better way, a better way of helping clients, but we actually need that study. We actually need some early studies. Now we have a couple out there. We have ones, a guy named Aaron Fisher did something like this with a study that was published in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. There's a few, a guy named Bruce Chirpita did some things with kernels and based on clinicians, functional analysis. But but we do know that there's basically minimal treatment utility, you know, actual better clinical outcomes that come from our current case conceptualization and diagnostic system. 
they even say it in the DSM, you know, this is not going to help you get better outcomes, basically. Well, then why do you have the freaking book? But, you know, um, but so I do want to say we have, we have work to do, but I hope, and there's a reason to believe that if we do this cheat of starting at the end and work backwards, a healthy cheat, not a nasty, lousy, dishonest cheat, an open, honest, transparent cheat of let's go to, if we want, a system that will have treatment utility that tell you what to do to get to the end. Let's go to the end and look at what got us there and then organize our interventions and our understanding of clients around the processes that we know have that kind of impact. But then there's that, let's be humble enough to know, to, to know to say, and we hope that really makes a big difference but those studies have yet been done. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, I'm conscious of time, Steve. Um, I think it would be a real shame just before before you head off, not to ask you maybe if if you've time for maybe two or three more questions. I'd love to ask right, you. Go go through your list and ask whatever you wish. I'm I'm good. Anything okay. that seems important, let's do it. Okay, so I think we can't end this conversation without discussing the extended evolutionary meta model. Um, can you maybe tell us what what this is and and why this is important? Well, we need a place to play where everybody gets to play, where, uh, you know, it isn't just, you know, a big pile of processes thrown on a heap. Why? Because we're already up to hundreds of processes. Well, if you have a process-based vision, you don't want processes that only predict in some narrow area. You can't afford to build, you know, a hundred different process-based models. And so, uh, and in fact, there's no, you know, there's no empirical reason to. So, so, you know, let's see how many different kinds of suffering and so forth there is. So we need a model to be able to, uh, to, to a meta model, a model of models uh, uh, to how to allow people to organize that way. So they we want these processes to be broadly applicable uh, so that we're not distracted with a whole little micro theories and things like that. Yeah, but as soon as you do that, people say, hey, man, you're stepping on my parade here because uh, I'm a behaviorist or I'm a cognitivist or I'm a humanist or I'm an analyst or I'm a... And we're right back into the same kind of walled off archipelago. Um, our idea was, well, let's go to the one model that we know produces consilience that every life science relies on, with the exception of one. Every life science, if, I mean, if you just ask your cardiologist a question and whatever they say, you say, well, why is that? Within three questions, they're going to say it evolved that way. Just do it. I mean, it just, it's going to happen. And you can go to your therapist and say, why is that from now until next Tuesday? And you're not going to get the E word. Why is that? Well, in part because people think you're talking about the genes made me do it or something. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how complex systems evolve. And they evolve by variation being selected and retained in a particular context across many different uh, dimensions that are co-evolving and organized into different levels of organization. So a multidimensional, multi-level uh, uh, evolutionary meta model that asks 
Well, it asks clinicians to think about what they think about anyway. You just, you just didn't realize you've been an evolution right, right along. I mean, evolution involves variation, selection, retention in context at the right dimension and level. Yeah, but uh, if you ask clinicians, I mean, variation would be if I don't know how to produce change, uh, if you keep doing what you've been doing, nothing's going to be different. Selection, if we can't tell winners and losers, if I don't even know where you're going, what you want, what you really yearn for, what your needs are, what your goals are, you know, I'm not going to not be able to help you. Retention. You know, if, if we're able to make some gains here and then you turn right back to the way you used to do things, you're going to get the same outcomes you used to get. We're going to have to focus on how, because initially these things will feel odd, they feel strange. Even if you have a sense they work better, you see that they work better. We're going to have to work to get them to be habits so that, you know, even when you're not looking, you're doing the right thing, the healthy thing. Context, but, you know, nothing's always good everywhere. We need to really look and see, you know, when this is the best way and when that's the best way. Well, so clinicians have been doing this in the beginning and it's, um, uh, what we've done with our, um, what we call our Death Star project with our, our, our um, uh, review, I don't want to say meta-analysis, it's not yet at that level, it's a systematic review of every mediational study ever done in the history of the world. Because we then looked at all of the items for all of those other reports, and some of them were items, things like breath holding, brain circuits, gray matter, blah, blah, blah. But we looked at every single thing we found and could we fit it into a model? Would it have a place if we thought about healthy variation, selection, retention, in context across these dimensions and levels? We proposed six psychological dimensions. Uh, why? In part because all the items would have a place to go if we did that. So affect, cognition, sense of self-attention, motivation, and overt behavior. And so far, it's working really, really well. I can see that we need more. Eventually, we need to dimensionalize the sociocultural level. We need to dimensionalize the biophysiological level. The problem is we don't have enough mediational studies right now to know exactly how. In the biophysiological side, really diet, sleep, and exercise are the big ones. And there's a few stragglers, a brain circuit study here or gray matter or epigenetic study there. Socioculture, we have a little more. We've got therapeutic alliance, we've got social support uh, that work pretty, pretty regularly. Uh, uh, parenting, but you can't go back and get parents if you didn't have them to begin with, but maybe you can work on parenting skills if you have kids yourself. Let's make a healthier next generation at least. But it's still pretty lean. And so uh, we'll get there. And I have some ideas about how to get there. We're making some suggestions, but that's what the aim is. We uh, pronounce it aim like to rhyme with team. And um, one nice thing about it is, although people feel a little odd about it, you know, uh, when they actually look at it, almost nobody wants to say what I do, at least no scientist, what I do has nothing to do with evolution. I actually literally have found nobody yet that wants to do that. Well, maybe one person for religious reasons, but he's not really a major scientist. So maybe we'll run into some of that. But it, it, almost everybody is saying, yeah, okay, I guess. And that's enough to get consilience. That's enough that we have a, you know, at least a sheet of paper we can all write our words on. 
instead of, you know, you know, you're over there, I'm over here, we don't need to talk to each other. It, uh, it blows my mind that, you know, and this is maybe somewhat controversial to say, but it blows my mind that, you know, there's over maybe 500 types of psychotherapy and you can boil it down to six things, you know, and I think the, the acronym you use is versatile, um, yeah. variation, selection, retention in the right context, the right dimension, the right level. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would you say, you know, the, the advantage of looking at a problem through multiple levels is for, for a therapist, you know, cause that seems to be a big part of this too. It is. And multi-level thinking is something that we're getting more of recently because people are starting to look at things like diversity, equity, inclusion, for example, and they're starting to really look at, well, wait a minute, you know, some of these things are cultural and some of these things have, you know, some of the problems people have, the struggles that we have came out, came out of that. Well, that's, a, um, and also, you know, the psychologists will sometimes so focus on the individual that they'll forget that, you know, if, if your relationship's going into the toilet and your family's fighting and, you know, you work in an organization that's a nightmare and people don't trust each other and on and on it goes, you know, you're, you're going to have trouble. You know, you have to think we're, we're the social primates. You need to think of what are the small groups we're part of and are, are they succeeding? Are they moving forward? And similarly, I mean, I often to explain this, will say to clinicians, how many people ask about diet, sleep, and exercise? And everybody raises their hands. And then I say, okay, anybody in here is 60 years or older. When you were trained uh, to do this kind of work early on, did you do it? Raise your hand. How did everybody raise their hand? Because we didn't do it. Psychotherapists didn't ask what you're eating. Did you exercise and did you sleep last night? Well, this is really dumb. If you take something like ADHD, you can correlate ADHD in kids with the sleep patterns of the children. And it isn't just because they have ADHD that they're not sleeping. It's because they've taken their cell phones in bed with them and they're playing video games at one in the morning. You know, and of course, Ritalin is helpful to them, let's say. I mean, it'd be helpful to me too if I only had five hours sleep. I mean, uh, so you, I'm not saying that's all of what ADHD, please don't send me those nasty emails. I'm just saying, you know, a person working with that problem, for example, is going to make sure mom, dad, let's see if we can get junior to bed at a, at an hour. And by the way, don't let him take his cell phone to bed. And, you know, if you don't, you're asking for trouble because some of those problems are exacerbated by and to some degree, probably even caused by sleep disorders. So uh, that's uh, an example. The nestedness of life. You know, you may think that you're like this little homunculus in your brain that is talking. No, you're not. I mean, you've got vast amounts of things that are intuitive and implicit that have been learned by experience that if you're lucky, you deploy the healthy processes that allow you to open up and even learn from them. I mean, that's part of the what is in there with something like acceptance or diffusion, for example, is to you know get the word machine reined in just enough, your mindfulness skills just enough that you can hear the softer voices of just experience that is not even put into words. But that might be really important if you have an abuse history not to go home with a guy who's unsafe. 
you know, we know that alexithymia comes from an abuse history. I don't know what I'm feeling. Yeah, that's understandable because it's painful to know what you're feeling when you have a history like that. But the frequency of re-abuse is ginormous for people who've been abused. Why is that? Well, one of the big, big, big dogs in the pen is alexithymia. I don't know what I'm feeling. Yeah, but if you could just get that language thing backed up enough that I can begin to sense, to feel intuitively. Yeah. Well, that's just another level. You know, there's that verbal, symbolic, relational, problem-solving level. But then there's this other level of learning that's done by association or by contingency, and it's implicit. It's not, I mean, your dog or your cat isn't going around saying, what do I feel, you know, am I depressed this morning? But they have access to feelings, no doubt, you know, better uh, elicited or evoked by the new situations, you know, suddenly, you know, because it's a place where they almost had a predator get them, you know, and they remember, you know, and you may have found that in your life. You go to a bar or something where something and it's familiar, sometimes feels wrong, something's off. Yeah, because it's something in your history. I remember being in an argument, well, the one that is well known, but uh, uh, so well known for, must be in a in a uh, uh, a meeting uh, as a young academic and having a panic attack because it reminded me of uh, some of the shouting that I used to hear when I was a really little kid hiding under the bed between my parents, and I didn't know that connection until way into the act journey. I've told that story. But I, you know, as you get more open, you realize you're a multi-level organism. And there's a levels even below that, of course. I mean, the things that are, don't even show up in the form of feeling, but are, that are going on. I mean, for example, um, you know, depending on the psychological skills that you deploy in a given situation, the world you're in may feel left, well, may seem more or less safe. It may not even be obvious to you, maybe not have emotion that goes with it. Yeah, but you might have things like this, your telomeres are short shortening or not, which will produce, predict early aging. That's an empirical fact. Experiential acceptance and mindfulness predicts that your telomeres stay long longer. You're literally going to not die as early as the next guy who's in a, a psychological state that biophysiologically is defined as an unsafe place to be. Uh, similarly, I mean, the, you know, the vagal system will get uh, stimulated in a way that defines this as unsafe. And all kinds of things start happening to your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system that produces things like um, uh, needless uh, physiological arousal because you're sort of ready to run or fight and you don't know why I mean, you don't even know that you are aroused my point being that multi-level thinking of us at all these levels of organization the social level but then all the way down to what's going on with your epigenetic regulation of genes allows us to take all of the life sciences and then there's this one really important ring i, I said this to my dean two days ago, and I said, look, you have to know what it feels like to be a behavioral scientist who thinks that we've made a lot of progress. 
I'm the guy that the other scientists will only call when their kid has a drug addiction or they just had a relationship breakup and they're depressed. But if I go into a room of a bunch of biologists, physicists, and chemists, they'll wonder, uh, uh, you know, are you really a scientist? You know, we are not at the table. People don't think of us when we're talking about climate change. My first book was um, called Environmental Problems, Behavioral Solutions. It's still in print because there's almost no other books like it 40 some years later. That's how pathetic it is. And I left the field for reasons that I can explain, but basically it came back to, I realized no one was going to listen to me because I'm a freaking behavioral scientist, you know, and the environmental engineers thought it would look at me like I was, you know, some sort of foreign entity or something. So I couldn't do it. And to this day, if they're talking about, we need to drive less, that's a behavior and turn down our thermostat. That's a behavior and buy electric cars. That's a behavior and stuff, you know, and I'm not even at the table. Nobody has a psychologist sitting at that panel. It would never occur to that newscast or whatever. Now they're going to call up the person, you know, they'll call Elon Musk or something. And I love Elon Musk in many ways and what he's doing. And that's great. But don't just wait for the physical scientists to solve the problem of immigration, of war, of prejudice, of stigma, of religious conflict. You know, you look down the road and you look at how hard the hardening that's going on in our politics and so forth. And major democratic societies moving in an anti-democratic way right now, right in front of us, wars, et cetera. Some of that comes out of people feel overwhelmed by the rate of change and what's happening. And they're turning to the people who know, you know, and protect traditional values and blah, blah, blah. Even if that means you'll lose your freedoms, even if that means that you don't do anything about climate change, you don't do anything about what's leading people to, I mean, how many Ukrainian immigrants are there? Yeah, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. By the time we've created a world where, you know, you can't live in the Middle East because it will roast you alive, where do you think those people are gonna go? They're gonna be banging on your back door. What are you gonna shoot them? Really? That's the world you're gonna create? Just keep them out? How about the folks on the islands that are going to be covered in water? I mean, you just look at where we're going. If we don't create modern minds for this modern world, we can't have this world, at least not in a way that we recognize as a moral, caring place to be. That's a rant. I did Steve's rants. I actually own the URL, Steve's rants. I've never used it, but I'm tempted to. But uh, so... The scold that I gave to the dean was, uh, I'm glad we're in the College of Science. We had to work back out to get there. But uh, I really think, uh, you know, you need to look at things like, for example, the World Health Organization two months ago decided to distribute ACT in a really simple little book. It's a cartoon book. You look at it, you say, oh, is this science? Yes, it is. Is this novel? Yes, it is that will help roar refugees who have mental illness at an order of level that's the same as self-help in the developed world. And now in a new trial will prevent the development of mental illness in people who are distressed by war, but not yet in a diagnosable category. It will reduce the, the emergence of those by 50%, 50%. 
compared to really well-crafted treatment as usual. So look, we have knowledge that we can put out there. And that one, which by the way is free and you can go and get it in 21 different languages because the World Health Organization can do things like that. It is a cartoon book and an audio tape. Um, you know, isn't they, they, what they said on the website is, this is helpful for anyone who's distressed about anything in any situation. The World Health Organization, you know, if I said that, you know, Steve would want to like beat me as being, you know, you're, you're, you're that horrible scientist who says what you got is good for everything. The World Health Organization says it's good because they tested it that way. And my point being that, you know, we need to be part of the conversation. We need to be so focused on how to be useful in so many different ways that we can start putting things into the culture that the culture can use. And when you think in that multi-level way, this rant went all the way back to that question, uh, we're able to be helpful even all the way up to the level of what do we do now that we can all do what I did this morning when I got up and looked at what was happening in Ukraine and almost wept at the pictures of bodies with um, you know, their hands tied behind their back in Europe who've been shot through the head. And by the way, have landmines on them. So if you try to bury them, you too can blow up. You know, if that's, uh, if that's not war uh, related distress, I don't know what it is. And the entire planet you know, children who are eight years old are watching what's on the television screen. The entire planet is exposed to it. And without any guidance, I think, usually, from the behavioral health and mental health people. Uh, so who did its homework? They're doing it with South Sudanese refugees and with Syrian refugees, and here we are with Ukrainian refugees. And you can go get it, but I wish people would know about it and use it. And uh, thinking of people in a process-based multi-level way is what led to that finding. That's why they came to me in the first place and asked, could we do something about the South Sudanese refugees? I sent them to Russ Harris because he's a lot better at doing things that people understand than this geek. And Russ did a magnificent, wonderful job, wonderful job. Um, so now that resource is available. That's a rant, but maybe it's a little bit about why it's important. Because our lives are multi-level. Our lives are multi-dimensional. And our needs are so great that if we mishandle this, we already have the capacity to make the planet unlivable through nuclear war. We already have that. Right? Nuclear winter, just look at the data. Full-blown nuclear war, we're, we're done. We're like you know, rodents moving around in the rubbish, hoping maybe the humans will survive. Maybe they won't. But it's not just that. We can cook the planet. But it's not just that. We can drown the planet. But it's not just that. It goes on and on and on. Uh, so I came into psychology. Yeah, I shifted out of environmental problems because I realized I just, I mean, now people listen. I wish in some ways I've been doing that research right along. But uh, I was an environmental activist before I was a, a graduate student. 
But the journey that I've always been on, including there, was to come up with processes that have such broad scope that the that it was a kind of universalist agenda. It wasn't just about problems; it was about prosperity, and it wasn't just about mental illness, whatever that is, but about all the things we do. And uh, it isn't just me. That was a field I discovered called behavior analysis, where the founder was studying rats and was writing utopian novels. You know, that rats to Walden to agenda, that's, I drank that Kool-Aid. And it doesn't mean that we have the answers. It means we have the mission. That's our job. And process-based therapy is a step forward, I think. We'll see but at least it's an aspiration or aspirational step uh, towards that as uh, what we can do as change agents uh, in society of really making us worth the salary that we're paid by taxpayers. I mean, taxi cab drivers are paying us and uh, they have the right to ask something of us like, can you make the world a better place for my children? Hundred percent. Well, you said that's a rant, but I really appreciate you um, you sharing that, Stephen. That, that was that was incredible. Um, so just before we end this, I'd I'd like to ask. You know, you've spent what is it, four decades, five decades, um, yeah. w- working on reducing you know psychological suffering, and you know you've dedicated your life to this. Um, for anybody that's listening to this, that is maybe inspired by your example or. Um, wants to be a change agent in the world. Have you got any sort of maybe general advice for someone with that kind of mindset that wants to, you know, wants to do something? Yeah, actually I've written some articles on this. The biggest thing I think is to start with your heart. What do you really care about? And, but also to rein in the ego that would, you know, I definitely have an ego, but if you ask my wife, you could probably even see it, but I've tried to really, remember that it's always we that does something. It's not me. You can almost not think of anything in the world that's been important that a me did without a we. And so how do we come together in community and do something? And your heart for the work is what will keep you going when it's 2.30 in the morning and you're deciding, what am I going to do about this thing that makes the weekend university run or whatever? If you don't have the passion for it, it ain't going to happen. And it's all about uh, pride and, uh, you know, being the famous one and so forth. You're not going to be able to lie with others to, to, to find people who are even better than you who can get out in front and do a better job than you can, etc. So you've got to work on your own psychological skills and flexibility to be able to, then you have to decide strategically, you know, how am I going to move the ball down the, the road. If I have a passion for something, whatever it is, it's a good place to start. Uh, that passion, uh, you're going to have to learn, you know, with the principles, knowledge, etc., that you get through a good education, but also with the technical skills. You know, head, heart, and hands. You start with the heart. You have to have the head and hands, and then you have to have the patience and the ability. I said earlier that, uh, and it makes it easy to answer this question because I said I, in my life anyway, I was uh, either going to be a, a psychological uh, a scientist and uh, a therapist, uh, a carpenter, uh, or a politician, and I ended up being all three because 
in a way, uh, metaphorically and physically, I, I, I actually have built a house with my own hands. I really can do carpentry, but I also know how to build things. And I'm enough of a politician to care about that. And, uh, but I think enough of a science to know something about what needs, what's the next question. I would, if you, if you don't have that, find people who do, because coming together in community is going to require some kind of political skills to let everybody have their, their, their uh, time in the sun. We've done some work with this thing called pro-social about how you build pro-social groups that maybe will give you a little bit of science guidance, including psychological flexibility, but also Lynn Ostrom's Nobel Prize winning core design principles. And, um, and be able to kind of one step at a time. Now, or do you have a guarantee that you're, uh, you're going to build something that will profoundly make a difference in the world? You don't. You don't because you're it will make a difference but whether or not it'll make a big difference a lot of that has to do with flat out luck but if you say yes easily and mean it you, you bring together people in community we're better thinkers in, as a group than we are as individuals despite that lie of group think group think is mostly a methodological false and it, you know you you work with your peers and your fellows to move it you know very often if you get that kind of group happening good things happen and so yeah you're not going to win the nobel prize so what i mean uh can i always say it this way what if you could do something that would so that would put something in the world so that let me ask you, I'll do it this way so you get the, I ask people, how, how many people know all of your great uh, grandparents' names, your full names, including the, the maiden names, full names, all eight of them. And, you know, about one out of 100 people know it. And I say, okay, so it means that if you just go out to your children's children, children they, you, they won't know your name. So now that we're no longer fighting for immortality, would it be worth trying to do something that would put into the world something that might be there for your children's children and children? And so they wouldn't know it came from you or that you had anything to do with it, but you in some small, tiny way rolled that ball down the hill with your mates, with your peers, not just you alone, so that something that was needed then was there or something that really wasn't good to have there wasn't there, that you somehow improved the human condition. I think that's a pretty, you know, if you can get in that mind space, uh, you know, right down to Dr. Seuss, who knows where you will go? And you remember that, that if you know that Dr. Seuss book, uh, the tales you'll tell, the places you'll go. I don't know, but it, I'll be excited to, while I'm still breathing, try to find out. Uh, it won't be that many more years I'm still breathing, but uh, hopefully uh, some of the rolling down the hill process myself will live on just in the communities and concerns and so forth and then soon enough it'll disappear but i know that some of this will be there for my children's children's children and uh, if not for mine maybe yours well, that's a game yeah. something to do 
I think that's a good game to play. And you reminded me of something that uh, David Sloan Wilson says. It's like the closest thing you'll get to a utopia on earth is working in a team with the same values towards a goal that you, you really care about, you know, and I, I really like that idea. Yeah. Um, so before we go, Stephen, um, where can people find you online? Where can they get the book? Well, if they want to follow my work, it's really easy. Just go to stephenchayes.com. Stephen with a V, middle initial C. That's my dad's name, Charlie. H-A-Y-E-S, stephenchayes.com. And if you're interested in PBT, you might want to be interested in the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. They have a special interest group on it. It's kind of the ACT wing, but it's you know, it has a lot of folks in there who are interested in process-based work third wave kind of CBT, but even beyond that, um, the, the book itself, these ones that are over my shoulder are easily accessible in multiple languages. And uh, they're not in all the languages that are coming, but uh, they're available at your local. But there's also support out there for how to get better at doing this, how to use it and how to develop it and so forth. So the the special interest group on PBT inside uh, Association of Contemporary Behavioral Science is a pretty good one. But if, uh, if if ACBS is not your thing, but maybe some other organization is, create a special interest group on PBT there. Find the folks who are interested in it where you are in the kind of work you do, if you think it's relevant. I'm a member of ACBS myself, and just the, the quality of discussions that are going on there and in so many different areas of of the field, you know, including PBT, evolutionary science, compassion, all of these different topics. There's just for what you're getting, like it's, it's so cheap to join as well. It's just, it's, it's such a good resource. So I highly recommend that. Um, you've got two courses as well, Stephen, you've got. I do. I do act immersion and act in practice. If you go to Praxis CET for continuing education and training, but actually if you, if you just do this, put act, dot courses you don't even have to put the www part just act got courses into your browser you'll see the old man's bright shiny face can be a little spendy if, you, if it's more than you can afford email the team and there's a link there and ask for a scholarship and we'll put you through a procedure to see if we can afford that uh, but i put my heart and soul into a couple of online courses i, I have another one that i'm working on right now and that's still a fourth one that i hope to do soon um the first one is Act Immersion. If you know anything about Act, start there. And the second one is called Act in Practice, and it gets pretty PBT-ish. It actually teaches, teaches kind of networking and things of that kind. Don't start there. It sounds like you should, Act in Practice. It actually builds on the first one, unless you are already pretty well-trained in terms of acty stuff, and then, yeah, sure, move over there. But that's my own stuff. If people listening here are not therapists or whatever, I do have a, uh, you know, a... a uh, audio thing from an outfit called Sounds True on ACT. And then a lot of blogs and all of that. If you go to my website at stephenchayes.com, you don't even have to click on, yes, please send it to me. You don't have to give up your email address to get this. Wander around and you'll find a list of all the podcasts that have been on so you can learn a lot that way too. And, um, you know, we're trying to, as much as we can, give it away. I mean, you mentioned the dues are low, for example, at ACBS. We, we were the only organization I know of that has values-based dues. And what we mean by that is you pay what you think it's worth and that you can afford. Now, it does have to be above 12 bucks because Elsevier, you know, this big, gigantic corporation that publishes our journal, 
and a journal comes free. And it made 38% growth, a net, not gross profit last year. <sighs> Capitalism, you gotta love it. Um, Elsevier is only too happy to take that money, almost all of it, so that we're actually at a net minus if you pay the, the, the least amount. But hopefully some of you can afford. I mean, I, I write a check for several hundred bucks because my values lead me there. And actually, interestingly, when we first did it, we got more people paying more rather than less because uh, a lot of people feel that way. And, you know, what we say, if you're a professional, try to pay 60 bucks or something. Well, actually, more people paid even more. So maybe we can run our societies more that way. On all honesty, what, what, what is it worth and what can you afford? Well, Stephen, I, well, I can't speak for Act and Practice because I've, I've done that course, but I've done Act Immersion and it's a brilliant introduction to, to the subject and I highly recommend doing that. It's a really high quality course. So anyway, um, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing some of your, your wisdom and insights around process-based therapy. It's been, it's been so valuable for me at least. And I think people are going to get a lot from this. So I just want to say thank you so much and keep doing the amazing work that you're doing and best of luck. Best of luck to you and I hope we get news of university continues to prosper. And thanks for the opportunity to share my uh, views and my uh, experiences and stuff with others. Much, much appreciated. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the weekend university premium membership. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.